Good morning. And I am glad to be here. A church member from a previous church from some years ago sent me a story that he promises is true. You know, anytime, anytime a story starts with, now I promise this is true. You kind of know what's coming, but it's a story about a pastor that he knew. And the pastor had a kitten. And the kitten climbed up in a tree in his backyard and then was afraid to come down. And so the pastor coaxed and offered warm milk and did everything that he could think of, but the, the little cat would not come down from the tree, and the tree was apparently not sturdy enough to climb, so the pastor had a brainstorm. He decided that he could tie a rope to one of the limbs of the tree and tie the other end of the rope to his car, and he could inch the car out and lean down the tree until the kitten was within reach and he could reach up and grab him. And so that's what he did. He kept moving a little bit at a time and getting out and checking and moving his car and then getting out and checking. And finally, he decided that if he just went a little bit further, the tree would be bent enough for him to reach the kitten. But this time, as he moved forward, the rope broke. He said it was an unforgettable sound. <laughs> As the kitten instantly sailed through the air out of sight. The pastor felt badly. And so he walked the neighborhood asking people if they'd seen a little kitten anywhere. But nobody had seen the kitten. So he prayed, Lord, I commit this kitten to your keeping. And he went on about his business. Four days later, he was at the grocery store and met one of his church members. And he happened to look down into the shopping cart and he was surprised to see cat food there knowing how she hated cats. And so he commented, why are you buying cat food when you hate cats so much? And she replied, Pastor, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> she went on to tell him how her little girl had been begging for a cat for some time, and she kept refusing her. And finally, four days before, the girl had begged again. And so the mom finally told her little girl, well... If God gives you a cat, I'll let you keep it. <laughs> Pastor, I watched my little girl go out in the yard, get on her knees, and ask God for a cat. And Pastor, you're not going to believe this, but I saw it with my own eyes. A kitten suddenly came flying out of the blue sky with its paws spread out and landed right in front of her. And now we have a cat. That, that story struck me as appropriate for where we are today in the Gospel of John. 
because we're going to talk today about the presence and the power of the resurrected Lord. Part of that presence and power is that he meets us precisely where we have need, and he answers that need. We're in the 21st chapter of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for a minute now, but we come to the last chapter today. We're going to spread this out over a couple of weeks, but this is uh, the third appearance of Jesus to his disciples as recorded in the Gospel of John. Now, there are others that are recorded in the other Gospels, but but John has given us two so far, both of them in the same place, in a room where the disciples had gathered together and they had locked the doors for fear of the Jews. First, The first meeting was without Thomas. The second meeting is where Thomas also attends. He makes the pinnacle statement in the Gospel of John, my Lord and my God. Well, I've told you that chapter 21 is the epilogue. It's where John now is going to come along and sort of tie up some loose ends that we need to know as we move forward with this story. And so in this chapter, uh, Jesus is going to make the third appearance that John records for us. And this is the longest account of any of the uh, appearances that John tells us about. And in this account, what we find is that Jesus is going to meet some, some men. They're no longer in Jerusalem. The time for Jerusalem to be in Jerusalem has come to a close. And so basically the disciples have now scattered to their different homes. Now, because several of the disciples were basically locals from the same area, we have now uh, a place where we find seven of the disciples together. Five of them are going to be identified for us, two others not identified. So we don't know, we don't know exactly who all the seven were. The other two They may have been a part of the the original 12, or they may have just been other followers that are now from that area that are are hanging out with with these guys. This is a passage where they're going to go fishing. And there are people, I've heard this passage taught before, that the disciples had abandoned the cause, that they didn't didn't know what they were doing. They were all going back to their their old lives. That's not happening here at all. Um, essentially what we're going to see here is that they've left Jerusalem. They've probably scattered to their different homes. And here these men, because of the common experiences that they've shared, because of the life that that they've lived together over the last three years, they naturally gravitate to each other. This is family. It's why we use family language when we talk about church. Uh, I have people ask me occasionally, they'll say, you know, I, 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 I like your church, but you know, man, it's so big. Say, listen, here's, here's the thing. You don't have to know a thousand people, but if you know eight people really well, Evergreen doesn't feel big anymore. Okay? Uh, these guys, they had done life together, and there's a bond that comes when that takes place. And so we find them together, and they're clearly uncertain. They haven't abandoned the cause. I mean, you don't abandon somebody that has come back from the dead. I mean, they're at this point irreversibly changed by their relationship with Christ. But they're also not yet to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes 
uh, to, to, to strengthen them and to empower them for this life. So they're in this in-between period. Jesus said, it's good for me to go away because then I'm going to send a helper and the helper is going to explain to you all the things that I taught you. But they're in the in-between time. Jesus is not with them every day, but yet he hasn't gone away. The Holy Spirit hasn't come and taken up residence. They're caught in, in, this, in this middle ground and they're just uncertain about how this is going to play out. Now, it's easy to say, well, they should have known this, they should have known that. Listen, uh, we're not going to throw rocks at any of these disciples, okay? Because they are definitely in uncharted territory. They know that Jesus just told them. He just met them in in a private place. And he said, just as the Father sent me, I'm now going to send you. They know that he's commissioned them for some sort of mission, but they don't have the details yet. They don't know how that's going to play out. They don't know when this mission starts. They don't know where the mission is going to take them. They don't know how they're going to accomplish it. They don't know what resources they're going to have available to do it. So what we're going to read in this passage is we're going to find them uh, not confused so much as just uncertain about what to do next. All right? John chapter 21, beginning with the first verse. After these things, meaning the previous appearances, after these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're also coming with you. They went out got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish to eat? Do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find the fish. So they cast it, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish." Seven disciples, there was Peter, there was Thomas who had been, who, who made the great confession in the last appearance, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and then two other disciples that aren't identified, maybe out of the original 12, maybe not. They're not men without a purpose, but they're men who don't know how their purpose is going to play out. They don't know what to do next. So they do what men have done for centuries. I don't know what to do. I can't just wait around doing nothing. I'm going fishing. And the others quickly agreed, we're going fishing too. Now understand, when they go fishing, these are professional fishermen. So they're not talking about sitting out on a dock somewhere with a rod and reel, just sort of killing time. They go on a boat with nets out into the middle of what they call what, what John calls here the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Roman name. It's the Sea of Galilee. They've fished this water their whole lives. Now, I find it fascinating. They're professional fishermen. Clearly, they know what they're doing. And apparently, in their life before they left to follow Jesus, they must have been relatively successful at it. But it, it, it kind of tickles me that The only time in the Gospels that we ever see them catch anything is when Jesus is there. 
And I don't know if maybe there's a, a sort of an underlying lesson there that uh, no matter what you do or no matter how good you think you are at something, uh, don't ever forget that your success depends on what Jesus is doing in and around you and through you. Okay? Now, so they decide to go fishing, get in the boat, they go out, and they are at it all night long. Now, they probably needed the physical exertion. They probably needed the distraction from waiting and wondering what comes next. But it's, it's very possible that they probably needed some money. There may have been a, an economic motivation here as well. This is how they knew how to make money. So let's go catch some fish. We take it to the market. You know, at least we can stay busy. Nothing is worse for a man than sitting around twiddling his thumbs, waiting for something to happen. I'm going fishing. All right, Peter, we're going with you. So they go out, they fish all night. The sun is coming up, but dawn hasn't fully broken yet. And so, uh, so it's still kind of dark. And they see that there's a man standing on the shore. Now, what the text tells us is that it was about 200 stadia. Uh, that translates for us to about 100 yards. So picture standing in one end zone of a football stadium and, and seeing somebody but it's dark, you can see a figure, but you can't identify who it is. They're standing in the other end zone. They're about that far away. And, and, and he, he calls out and he says, hey, you don't have any fish to eat, do you? Now, it doesn't take a lot of sanctified imagination to understand if you've ever been around a fisherman that's been at it all day long and hadn't caught anything, to understand the lack of enthusiasm in their answer. You, you don't have anything to eat, do you? No. Well, throw the net onto the other side of the boat. Now, here's the thing. Professionals are usually, in any field, professionals are usually not that happy about unsolicited advice from non-professionals in that field. They've been at this all night. They know what they're doing. They haven't caught anything. Why don't you put the nets on the other side? Ugh. But here's where fishermen are a little bit different than other people. Even though this advice was unsolicited, even though it comes from somebody that they can't identify, if you're a fisherman and you haven't caught anything, you will try anything. It doesn't matter. Ah, that sounds stupid, but what can it hurt? I haven't caught anything. So they drag up the nets, and they carry them over, and they throw them on the other side, and boom, fish. Not just fish, a ton of fish. 153 fish, to be exact. John's going to tell us that number, 153. Now, it's fascinating because if you look at the history of biblical interpretation over the last 2,000 years, it's fascinating to me how many times people have tried to take that 153 number and turn it into some symbol for something. One of the ancient fathers argued that, that there were 153 known varieties of fish in the world, and so this, this represented a catch of all the fish in the world. No, here it is. It's just this straightforward. Don't make the Bible more complicated than it needs to be. Why did he know there's 153 fish? Because fishermen in every generation always record the details of unusual catches. What'd you catch today? Well, I only caught two, but one of them was 18 and a half inches. 
It's not what I asked, but thanks for the info. <laughs> Fishermen are like that. 153 fish, he says. That's just, a, a, that's just a sliver of authenticity that tells us that the text is uh, an eyewitness account, that it's real. Nobody made this story up. That's not the kind of thing you would include except as someone who was there. All right. Here's the, I've called this the, the, the provision by the Lord because what's happening here is they probably needed resources. They didn't know how this mission that they were going to be on was going to work out, uh, but they were determined to go work and, and provide for themselves. They were using their vocational skills to make whatever coming ministry uh, that was ahead of them to make it possible. But they were, what's interesting about the story is that while they were unaware that Jesus was close by, he knew their situation intimately. In fact, my version in, in, verse, in verse 5, it translates this question, children, you do not have any fish to eat, do you? Uh, really, the Greek there, uh, it, it's masculine, so it, it ought to be translated boys. It's a, it's a term of endearment. He calls out and he says, hey, boys. You catch anything yet? You have anything we can eat? You see, they didn't know it was Jesus, but he knew who they were, he knew where they were, and he knew what their situation was. One of the strategies that, that, that Satan uses against the children of God is he loves to find us as we enter into a, a, a crisis season, a storm, something happens that... That's, that's going to be a challenge. We're in a season of life where, where we're a little overwhelmed by everything. And he loves to whisper. It doesn't matter if it's a, a health thing or a job thing or a money thing or a relationship thing. He loves to say, you know, God doesn't have any idea what you're going through. You know, if he did, he'd be right here beside you. Satan has always, from the Garden of Eden, been in the business of impugning the, the character and the reputation of God. You know he doesn't know what's going on in your life. That's that voice that says, God's not aware, he doesn't care. The fact of the matter is, these disciples, they're not sure how things are going to unfold. They have no idea that Jesus is not only physically in proximity to them, but he's intimately aware of precisely where they are in the needs of their moment. In fact, he's going to meet them at the precise need. You catch anything yet? No. Put your net on the other side. Why? Because he's going to give them what they need to have the provisions to move forward. Now, here's the thing about that. This unenthusiastic reply on their part uh, is followed up by his, his instructions. And, and what we have is a great miracle. But what I love about this miracle, as opposed to some of the other miracles in the New Testament, is that John is not preoccupied with the fish. There's something more important going on here. And we're going to see his response in, in just a minute. But all the way through the Gospel of John, let me remind you, when we've seen, when John has recorded miracles, he, he calls them signs. The reason he calls miracle signs is because those miracles always point to someone else. The miracle is never the, the end product. It's never the goal of what Jesus is doing. The sign is always meant to push people's attention 
to the miracle maker, to Jesus. Here, this is an incredible miracle. In fact, these fishermen would have known better than we do just how amazing of a miracle this was. They had been out there all night. They had fished that whole area. The idea that there are 153 fish now at this moment waiting to be caught just on the, on the side of their boat, they understood this was extraordinary and the net didn't break. They knew this miracle was absolutely astonishing and yet they didn't care about the fish. It wasn't about that. You're going to see what happens as we move forward. The provision by the Lord, but we're going to see the recognition of the Lord. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 7. Um, it says in verse 6, they, they, were, they weren't able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. Verse 7, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out, of, out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already made and fish placed on it and bread. Now, the miracle was everything that John needed. It was the only clue he needed to recognize the Lord. They can't see the man standing on the shore, but... This miracle is familiar because Luke chapter 5, in the beginning of the ministry, when, he, when Jesus calls them to follow him, this same thing happens. He tells them where to fish, and there's a, uh, an incredible catch. The miracle, uh, Jesus did it on purpose because it was something that John instantly recognized. John was being John. He was being the disciple of discernment. Remember how uh, in John chapter 20, we saw, we saw Peter and, and John racing to the empty tomb after Mary Magdalene had come back and said, hey, the stone's rolled away. They've, they've done something with his body. And these two race to the tomb. John gets there first, as he makes sure we know. But he stops at the door. Peter gets there and bursts in, as he's likely to do, man of action. And he looks around. John follows him. And then he, remember what it says? John looked at the evidence and it said he believed. He intuitively knew what was happening, what was going on in the moment. John was so tight with Jesus that he had this intuition of the way Jesus would do things. That's what we have happening here. John is the one who sees the catch of fish, sees the, the, the figure on the shore and puts two and two together and he goes, I've seen this miracle before. Peter, Peter, that's the Lord. He was the disciple of discernment. Now, it's, I, keep, I keep calling him John. Uh, you're going to see next week as we get to the end of the 21st chapter, John's going to give us the clue of why all the way through the gospel we've identified the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved as John. John never self-identifies in, in his gospel. He always uses that phrase, the disciple that Jesus loved. But he used that because for John, I'm convinced he never got over the fact that Jesus loved him. I mean, that was his highest, uh, the highest thing he could say about himself. He didn't have anything to commend himself. He didn't have anything to present that was particularly uh, impressive. But if you want to know who I am, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. Well, he does what he always does. He's the disciple of discernment. Peter, it's the Lord. 
And then Peter does what he always does. Peter's a man of action. Now, when it says that he had to get dressed and because he was stripped for work, understand he wasn't naked. What he, what he had done is he had taken off his outer tunic, and, and usually they would pull up anything uh, on, on in the inner tunic, and they would tuck it into a sash so that the legs were free. So he was probably wearing his inner tunic uh, because he was working. And when John says, hey, Peter, it's the Lord, he immediately understands that, that he's not really presentable. I mean, this is the resurrected Jesus. So he grabs his, his outer tunic, and he puts it on, and he jumps in the water. Like I said, 200 stadia, it's about 100 yards uh, for Peter. He can't wait for this slow boat to be dragging these fish to get in. He jumps in the water, and he makes his way toward shore because he's going to see Jesus. These two disciples are both acting perfectly in character. John knew it was Jesus the same way that Mary Magdalene knew it was Jesus when she heard him speak her name. The actions of both disciples are exactly what we would expect from them, but they did have this thing in common. They both understood instantly in the moment that the cross had not stopped the ability of Jesus to be with them and to provide for their needs. They were familiar with him based on their experience, but they had fellowship with him based on their relationship. They were not preoccupied with the catch of fish. That was just a hint that the man on the shore was Jesus. Now, Jesus makes provision. He gives them what they need, and they recognize him in verses 7 through 9. But now, I want you to see the contribution that they're going to make to him in verses 10 through, uh, well, 9 through 12. In, chapter, in verse 9, it says, So when they got out on, on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already made and fish placed on it and bread. In other words, they see a picture of breakfast being prepared, bread and fish. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Simon Peter went up and hauled the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to inquire of him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Now, let's talk about these verses. Jesus provides the abundance, 153 fish. Remember, they counted it. This is precise. This is not symbolic. They didn't make this up. They knew exactly how many fish they had. Jesus had provided the fish, but now as they get to land, they realize that he has started breakfast, but there's not, there's not enough yet for all uh, seven of them plus Jesus to eat. So he says, why don't you bring some of the fish that you caught? Here's the thing. Peter rushes. Peter, who's, who's been on the land maybe for a, a bit, he rushes back down, and he's been called in, in church history, he's been called the big fisherman. This is one of the passages of Scripture that give us that image of Peter as being a, a rather bulky, uh, muscular kind of guy but see, because he goes down and he grabs that net full of fish and he hauls it up out of the water. I mean, he's a beast. But here's what's happening. Jesus says, why don't you bring some of that fish and, and then we'll, we'll have enough for breakfast. When we talk about giving in the context of Christianity, I run into an attitude occasionally with 
with people who, who will say things like, you know, they, they, they labor under a misconception because they'll say things like, you know, I work hard for my money. I mean, I put in a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of energy. I spend a lot of hours and I make, I make this much money. And what you're suggesting is that I should just give some of it away. Okay, let me, let me explain the flaw in that thinking. The flaw is this. These guys in this story, they worked hard. They were out there all night. I mean, they were, they, they were hard at it. And it wasn't that productive really until Jesus came along. But they didn't lack effort. They were using their vocational skills to try and accomplish what, what they felt like they were supposed to accomplish. But when they get to the shore and Jesus says, why don't you bring some of those fish over here? Notice what didn't happen. They didn't divide it up seven ways and say, okay, now everybody, you really ought to tithe, you know, one out of every 10 fish if you could just contribute that over here for breakfast. It wasn't like that. Peter understood that they had worked all night. They wouldn't have one single fish if it wasn't for Jesus. And so when he's dragging that net up onto the land, I can tell you exactly what's in Peter's head. Jesus has said, why don't you bring a couple of those fish over and we'll have it for breakfast. And Peter was like, I'm going to drag every one of these fish over there because if Jesus needs them, he's the one that gave them to me and he can use them any way he wants. See, here's the problem with, with our idea of giving. We think that we pay our own bills, that we earn our own money, that we are responsible, and that now we're being asked to do something extraordinary to give it away, to, to give it to the, to, through the church, to, to do ministry or whatever. And, and, and the problem is you're never going to be a joyful giver. You're never going to love to give to the cause of Christ until you figure out how to settle the issue of ownership. Let me tell you, when Peter was, was, was dragging, the, were dragging, he was dragging these fish up, he understood that he only had fish because Jesus had given them to them. When you give to the cause of Christ, it's a lot like when my kids were little and Father's Day would roll around and they would all march in with their presents. They had presents for dad on Father's Day and I would open up the presents and I would make a big deal about them and sometimes they were homemade and sometimes they were purchased and, and, and here's the presents dad got for Father's Day. But you know what? You know what I never mentioned? The money they used to buy those presents, where did it come from? Came from me. Where did they get the money to do that? It came from me. But you know why I didn't say, well, you know, I could have bought that for myself. It's my money. You know why I didn't do that? Because letting them have the money so that they could give it back to me in the form of a gift, their faces had the joy that they had been able to do something. You want to know what giving is? You want to know why some people love giving and other people just can't figure it out? It's because some people have figured out that my dad already gave me everything and now I get to give some of it back and he lets me have the joy of participating in something that I could never have done on my own. It's a question of ownership. Now, I didn't plan for this to be a giving sermon. But there's certainly somebody in this room, I feel, I feel an impulse from the Spirit to, to take this direction. There's somebody in this room that needs to hear this today. I'm not making an appeal for you to give more, 
But I'm telling you, you are never going to love the Christian life that you've been called to until you can settle the issue of ownership. Peter dragged those fish up on the shore, and if Jesus had said, I need all of them, Peter would have said, they're yours. They got to make a contribution back to the Lord. Peter was determined to, give, to make available to Jesus everything that Jesus had in turn provided to him. Part of my struggle, among several things, but part of my struggle with the dominant sort of health and wealth theology that is so prevalent in the city that we live in, part of my reluctance there is I, I hear Bible teachers that make money the reward for faith. When the biblical model is, Jesus provides us resources which enable us to go use faith to make a difference in the world. So uh, is it bad to have a nice car? Not if the Lord gives it to you. But even if he gives you a nice car, don't you think he gave it to you so that you could drive to some places to make the difference in the lives of some people in his name? Um, I don't know how much 153 fish would have been worth in the first century as they took it to the market. I don't know what the share would have been as they divided it up between seven of them. But I do know that when Peter drags that net up, there's not one person that says, ho, 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 wait a minute. I, my share's in there too. No, every one of them understood that Jesus had done something extraordinary. They wouldn't have had one fish without him. So if Jesus needed them, it's his, to, it's his to, to ask for. If we could view everything that we've earned, quote, by our hard work, if we could view it as Jesus making those resources available to us, then we would have a lot less struggle to give those resources to his service. You say, now, wait a minute. So why do I have to earn it? Why do I have to work so hard to get it if Jesus is going to give it to me? All right, let's talk about that. You know what the worst thing you can do raising children is? Let them plop themselves down on the couch with a gaming console and give them everything they want. You know what you produce there? A lazy, spoiled brat. Why would God raise us up by setting us down on a couch and then having us just have stuff fall out of heaven? Even in the Old Testament, when God provided in the wilderness, he provided manna, God's provision did literally sort of fall out of the heavens. But you still had to get up every morning and go out and collect it. You still had to work for it. Why? Because God is not making you earn your money. He's providing your money. He's helping you build character by, learn how, by learning how to be responsible, to be faithful, to be steadfast, to endure, to have hard work, to exert yourself. He's developing people. And he doesn't need soft, lazy, spoiled brats. But I'm telling you, don't ever confuse your hard work with the money that you receive. So my boss gives me that money. God gave you that job. So where's the money really come from? It's a sack, it's a net full of fish. And he's going to leave you plenty 
to live off of. But if he says, why don't you bring some of that along here so that we can do what I, what I want you to do, that should be done without hesitation every single time. They had an opportunity to contribute to the Lord. But here's an interesting verse at the end of this section. In verse 12, he says, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to inquire of him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Okay, two things there. Come and have breakfast. I want to remind you where this started. When Andrew and John, three years before, they had been listening to John the Baptist teach. And John the Baptist, on that particular day, said, Hey, 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 guys, look. And he pointed at a man who was walking by and he said, you know the one I've been telling you about? The one I've been telling you was going to come? Behold, look, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And as Jesus walks by, Andrew and John peel away and they begin to follow him from a distance, a respectful distance, but they're still following him. They're absolutely captivated by curiosity about this Messiah that John had been telling them about. And Jesus, aware that they were there, like he always was, he turns around and he goes, this is my translation, can I help you? And they're caught off guard. I mean, they're curious, they wanted to know more about Jesus, but they weren't expecting a conversation. And so they're, they're like, they stumble, they're like, um, yeah, um, well, uh, we're just, we're just, uh, we're interested, we're interested in where you're staying. Where are you staying? That, that's what we want to know. That is not what they wanted to know. They didn't care where he was staying. They just wanted to know more about him. And Jesus has this, this amazing response. They say, we just, want to, we just want to know where you're staying. Remember what he said? Come and see. Come and see. He was giving them an invitation to enter into conversation with him. They went somewhere and they sat down for the afternoon, and they spent that day with Jesus, and it was a day that changed both of their lives forever. Three years before, they didn't know him, and he invited them to get to know him. Now, three years have passed, and they know him intimately as he knows them, and come and see has turned into come and dine. Come sit down share a meal, be in fellowship with me. Let me tell you, I know you're probably tired of me saying this because I say it all the time, but I'm not going to stop, so just get used to it. There's a reason you need to be in the Word of God every day. And it's not so that you can check a box on some offering envelope or, or that you can, can make sure that, that God's not going to hurl a lightning bolt in your direction. Being in the Word of God, that's, when Jesus says come and see, he's inviting somebody who doesn't know him to examine him, to see if he is who he claims to be. But once we've come into relationship with him, it changes from come and see to come and sit down and eat with me. The Word of God, that, that's when you, you, you grab a cup of coffee. If you, if you drink coffee, you grab a cup of coffee and you get your Bible and you sit down and it's you and Jesus, and you're sharing. You're consuming the Word of God. You're sharing a meal, and He's right there with you. 
They went from come and see to come and dine. Now, they're a little bit nervous here. And that's where this verse is, is a little bit of an odd verse. Verse 12 says, None of the disciples ventured to inquire of him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. You say, well, what does that even mean? Well, let me tell you. There was something extraordinarily familiar about him. But there was also something different. He was the same, but not exactly the same. Why? Well, you see, for three years, he'd been teaching them that he was divine. I mean, he said, I'm in the, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. I and the Father are one. I've been sent from the Father. The Father has given me the words to say. The Father has given me the, the deeds to do. I represent my Father. The Father loves me and I love the Father. He's been giving them these clues that he was divine, that, that he was marked by deity. But while he was giving them clues, basically for three years, it was his humanity that was on most display. They saw him as the human Jesus with hints that there was divinity mixed in there in ways they couldn't yet fully understand. But see, once he conquers death, once he survives the tomb, once he comes back and walks through walls to be in their presence, they recognize him, but all of a sudden his humanity seems to be slipping to the background and his divinity is on full display. And all of a sudden, the man that they've joked with and joshed with and followed and listened to and, and, and wept with and learned from, all of a sudden, this man was dead. And now he's alive. And he comes and goes as he wills. And all of a sudden, they're just a little awkward. They're a little nervous about being with him. But let me show you what happens. Jesus takes the initiative in the moment. He says, come and have breakfast. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Here's the thing. For Jesus... For Jesus in this, in this moment, he is, he is his, God, his, his Godhood is on display, but he approached them. Fellas, you know me. Come sit down. Let's have breakfast together. We don't know Jesus except through Scripture in his humanity uh, the same way that they did. It's easier for us to ponder his divinity because we're looking back on the whole story. I mean, we know, even when we celebrate Christmas, we already know the story of Easter. So we know that this wasn't just a regular baby. We know that, he, that he's going to end up being the risen Lord. So we, we're a little more comfortable with, with the divinity side of, of Jesus. But, but the point here is, Jesus condescends, even in his resurrection appearances, to meet them where they are. The same way he condescends to meet you and me where we are. Here's the thing. John calls himself what? The disciple that Jesus loved. 
I'm here to tell you that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you, me, we have each become the disciple Jesus loves. Don't let the enemy put something between you and Jesus. He loves to say, you know, you've screwed up again. Don't pray about it because God's going to judge you. Don't read your Bible because you're just going to feel bad. Don't, don't go to church because you put yourself in the middle of all those people and, and, and you're just going to know you don't belong there. The enemy tries to separate us from Jesus. He tries to make us awkward and uncomfortable around Jesus when Jesus is always reaching out and saying, hey, I fixed breakfast. Come sit with me. Come dine with me. Come have fellowship with me. Don't be afraid to come be with Jesus. That's an invitation that's still standing 2,000 years later. Come and see becomes come and dine. Well, verse 13 and 14, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. There was provision by the Lord. Then they recognized him, recognition of the Lord. Then he invited them to contribute to what he was doing, contribution to the Lord. And now we've come full circle back around to provision by the Lord yet again. They needed this breakfast, not just because they were hungry after a whole night of fishing, but they needed it because they needed to see that Jesus was no spiritual illusion. He was not a ghost. He was no phantom. He fed them breakfast and apparently sat down and ate breakfast with them. Why? Because that's what they needed. Jesus is in the business of meeting you at the point of your need and making himself known and available to you. This is where resurrection, presence, and power plays in. They needed to understand that whatever the mission was, however it was going to unfold, whatever was coming, that the fact that he was resurrected meant that his presence was never going to leave them and his power was always going to be available. That power is clearly displayed as the ongoing source of everything we need in life to accomplish the will of God. Think about this spiritual power. They were quickly learning that the power needed to live the life he had called them to, he was going to provide the power. Same way he provided the fish and then invited them to use the fish for the breakfast, he's going to give us the power to live the Christian life, then he's going to call us to live out that life in his name. Spiritual power. He's also going to provide heavenly peace. Both of the first two times he met with them, what were the first words out of his mouth? Peace. Peace. We live in a world of chaos. And honestly, it just doesn't seem to be getting any better at all. What are we desperately in need of? Spiritual power to live the life. Heavenly peace to be able to have a restful spirit in the middle of a chaotic generation. Spiritual power, heavenly peace. Oh, supernatural hope. Supernatural hope comes from knowing Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, think about these guys. Remember, it's just two weeks ago that we celebrated Easter. But that Saturday before, that was the darkest, ugliest day of their existence. 
They knew that everything that they had hoped for, everything that they had dreamed of, everything that they thought was going to happen, it had all come crashing down. None of it was going to unfold until the tomb was empty, until resurrection morning when Jesus began to make Himself known. He was alive. He was not dead. And all of a sudden, they had a hope that said, the story's not finished. The story hasn't come to an end. There's not a conclusion yet. It's still ongoing, and I get to be a part of it. And we have that kind of supernatural hope because 2,000 years later, that God is still alive. That mission is still in place, and we've been invited to join these men in accomplishing that mission. The story is still unfolding. And we have the hope that this world is not going to be like this forever. But there's something happening, and we get to be a part of it. Spiritual power, heavenly peace, supernatural hope, and I'm going to add this into this same category, material resources. We have two wrong responses to the question of money and Christian giving. One response is, I give in order to get. I make money my reward. I sow a seed and God's going to give me a car. Wrong approach to money. But we make an equal error when we say money and faith are disconnected. They're unrelated. We're so afraid of being misunderstood that we, that we disconnect them when Jesus never disconnected them. He gives us resources, tangible, physical resources, things that we can use, not as a reward for our faith. The reward for our faith is still to come. But he puts those things in our hands because we have a mission to accomplish and we need to know the how, the when, the where, the why, and the resources necessary to make it happen. He's going to provide those things. So don't be afraid to ask God to provide because here's the thing. God loves to put resources in the hands of people that he can trust with those resources. If Peter had said, well, Lord, listen, I've got some bills to pay. So I'm going to take this fish down. I'm going to sell it in the market. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to make sure that I, that I, I you know, that, that, that storage fee on my boat is paid for. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure everything. And if there's anything left, Lord, whatever's left, Man, I'm, I'm bringing it right there. It's all yours. That's the way we do it. We know that the tithe, this concept, whether it's 10% or 20% or whatever you decide that you should give, it's not about the percentage, but the tithe, it implies first fruit. It implies that, 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 you, that you make a, a gift to God before you do anything else. That's not the way most of us do it. We pay our bills and we go, well... I got this much I can, I can do this week. I can give this to the cause of Christ. Two wrong errors. He's promised us spiritual power to live a life that we couldn't live by ourselves. Heavenly peace to live in a chaotic generation that would overwhelm us if it wasn't for Jesus. Supernatural hope, the confidence that what we're doing here matters and that the story is still unfolding exactly like God planned and material resources so that we're capable of accomplishing the things that God puts in our minds and puts on our hearts to do for the kingdom of Christ. You see, he provides, he, he's the father, 
He gives provision. Then they recognized it was from the Lord. And then they took the opportunity to give it back to him. Provision, recognition, contribution. And then we start the cycle all over again. Jesus gives them what they need. Provision, recognition, contribution, provision, recognition, contribution, provision, recognition, contribution. Jesus is at work in this generation, in this country, in this city, and in this room. Do we recognize the work that he's up to? And have we sold out to be a part of the story that is unfolding in our generation? Are we in the last days? I don't know precisely, but I know we're one day closer to the end than we were yesterday. We're seven days closer to the end than we were last week. We're 2,000 years closer to the end than when it was given, when the promise was given to us. So yeah, we're making a full speed run in the last days. What does that mean? It means that we have confidence to live out the urgency that's in our hearts to advance the cause of Christ in this generation by us. We are the disciples that Jesus loves. If you don't know Jesus Christ, let us introduce you to him. If you need to renew your walk with Christ and just get out of the rut of everything else that's taking you away, if you need to realign your thinking so that you think biblically about the things of God, if you need somebody to walk with you, to disciple you in the disciplines and the habits of the faith, whatever you need to do, now's the time. Our pastors are going to be right here. We're not going to be here long, just a few minutes. But come find one of our pastors. Let us pray with you. Let us talk to you. If it's something, if you don't have a ton of time, you've got to be somewhere with family today, that's okay. Come meet with one of our pastors. We'll set up a time that we can sit down and walk you through what God is doing in your heart. Don't ignore the impulse that is deep in your soul right now. Find your way to Jesus. To meet him the first time, come and see. To know him better, come and dine. To be a part of a grand story, come and walk with him. Father, thank you so much. Your word is awesome. It is stunning. And it is so clear in our souls as we sense your spirit in this place, teaching from this word. Father, we laughed at the pastor who lost the kitten, but we understand that, that it's a humorous way of saying that even a little girl on her knees in the front yard, you meet her where she is and you give, gifts, you give the good gifts of a loving father. Father, help us to be good stewards of what you've put in our hands. Help us to recognize that you are the source of all of our good things. And give us courage and confidence, spiritual power, heavenly peace, supernatural hope, and the material resources that we need to be faithful to the unfolding story, the drama of redemption that is being played out even now in this generation. Father, 
May your eyes roam to and fro across the earth. And as you cross over the people of Evergreen, may you find here a people whose hearts are completely yours. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.